I just want to, you probably know, you know, the tsunami from Indonesia's earthquake a few years ago, it was a disaster for many people, wherever it hit. But there was one uh, group of people for whom it was a boon. Uh, it hit Sri Lanka, the coast of Sri Lanka, and these people, they were fishing villages right along the coast, and it just destroyed everything. And these corporations went to Sri Lanka, made an agreement with their government, and they have beautiful hotels and resorts on that. Yeah. That's another side of water, yeah. this uh, exploitation. So you have hit some of the things right on the head. The issues we are facing here, some people don't realize. I think it's, thank you very much for coming. Thank you very much. And thank you for making that comparison. I think it's a very uh, moving and upsetting comparison. People's homelands, their communities, their villages are destroyed. And they're destroyed once by the tsunami and the second time by the corporate takeover of their beautiful land. And also, there was all sorts of privatization happened of the services, water services and everything else in a number of the countries that were hit by the tsunami. Hi there, my name is Marion. I'm one of the media organizations here, and uh, I've been following this story pretty closely. Um, and it seems like there's kind of an apex of, of discussion and political proposed action going along with fracking in particular. Um, a couple of stories I noticed recently, and I just wanted to get your take on it. One was that there was a, a moratorium posed in the U.S. on any new well leases uh, until the uh, results of that EPA study came out. And I was wondering how that would, how you think that relates to the discussion here in Canada. And also, um, I heard, again, this was only within the last couple of days, that Texas passed a law where you have to reveal all the chemicals that are going into your fracking process. Yeah. Um, and that, that's a new thing. It's, it's not always uh, there in the U.S. So, again, how does that relate to how things are, yeah. are panning out here in Canada? Yeah, that, uh, the, temporary the temporary moratorium until this EPA study is done is really important. And we're more hopeful, frankly, under the Obama administration, although they've been really gung-ho on this fracking, I have to say. But more, uh, I think we're more hopeful that they will be um, responsible respectful of an EPA study than perhaps a former administration might have been when it was just basically the ener whatever the energy industry wanted is good. Um, there's a huge fight back in the United States, and it's it, taking the form of a number of local ordinances. I mean, they've had to deal with this because people have just said, no, not in our communities. They've gone to local municipal governments, and, or they've just come together and passed what they call local ordinances, which is part of a process that we don't quite have here, um, and, and have called these places fracking free zones and that kind of thing. It's really a, a powerful movement, as you know. So I think the lesson for us here is absolutely a moratorium while we do the kind of study that needs to be done. If somebody can convince us that there's a kind of natural gas um, exploration that is not going to destroy communities' water, uh, air, <laughs> you know, and soil, um, all, by all means, let's hear the argument. But I, 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 I feel very strongly that the demand for a moratorium has... Uh, um, has gone a long way. I mean, New York, the New York uh, 
uh, mayor uh, has has banned fracking in in the New York City area. Uh, Pittsburgh just uh, brought in a right to nature uh, ordinance based, uh, and bylaw, basically uh, banning fracking. So I mean, it really is taking off, and um, it's controversial around the world as well. So hopefully, that's going to inform our decision here because we're really gung ho on 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 uh, on fracking. And as I say, Quebec has brought in a temporary moratorium as well. Um, Texas, yes, we've been trying to get information on what's in these, um, uh, what's in this, um, uh, what, what the toxic chemicals are, and you, I think you probably know that Halliburton owns the patent, um, and these are the folks, yes, the same folks that made a good deal of money from the Iraq war, and they have not wanted to disclose uh, the ingredients in the fracking, although this New York State uh, Environment Study <coughs> did name they they didn't they didn't get the information from the companies about what was being put in it. They had to do what Mike's had to do, which is actually study the water and take a test of the water. And they found 257 chemicals in the water around the fracking sites. So and they name what they are. So it, you know we do we are beginning to get a good idea of what's in them. But I think it's really important for these companies to disclose what's being put in the water. And I think if local communities here. They're going to say, look, at that's not going to stay downstream. That's not just going to be within a several-kilometer radius of those wells. That's going to affect the drinking water of everybody in the area. So we need this information, and, and uh, thank you, for A, for being here, and, and B, for asking a um, terrific question. Come here and then over here. Um, one thing I'd like to say, I, I just have a comment. I don't really have a question, but... The fact that we have the ability to, to the, the intelligence to, to put something in the ground and, and get something out and you know, utilize a resource, I think that's pretty amazing. But it's not in harmony with nature. It's, yeah. not, you know, it's not healthy for, for hum, human beings. It's not healthy for our environment. And I hope that by the time that I'm you know, a ripe old age of reti- retirement, people will have stood up and fought for you know, a change to, to, to reduce the, the focus on this industrial complex where it's just the bottom line grows bigger and bigger and bigger and, and stays disharmonious with life on Earth. You know, if, if we could just get, you know, youth to, to, to want to become entrepreneurs, to want to start large businesses and have big dreams of becoming very, very large and, ha- and becoming a power on the economic, on the, on the global playing field of the economic system to, to, to really unite with the heart and just end this industrial complex of, of you know, disharmony. And water, when, when you say I love you to water and flash freeze it, the crystals look like snowflakes. Mm-hmm. And when you say I hate you to water and flash freeze it, it's, it, it looks like Mordor. It, it's not mm-hmm. very good. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if we can all just love water and love life and fight this industrial complex. That's what I want to Thank say. You. Thank you. Uh, Lois, would you like to comment on, uh, please feel free, or Mike, please feel free to come and comment on any of this. Anytime. Well, I just wanted to, um, to add to that comment that what we're facing, you know, as First Nations people and as people in southern Alberta is 
that our leaders have sold us out. You know, they have bought into this whole industrial uh, system, you know, of uh, corporatization of our communities. You know, that uh, money is more important than people. And so that is where I think our challenge is because if oil companies can come into our community and control our leadership, I think that's where the real problem is. Very, um, it's very hard. It, it's very, very hard that your community's been um, uh, split asunder like this. And I've seen it all over the world. I've seen communities split in this way. And it's, a, it's, it's probably the most serious byproduct of this tragedy, if you will. Yes, please. Thank you for your invigorating speech to give us time to respond. Because during your speech, I thought, well, at the end, that we can respond. It just seems to flow naturally. Since, uh, oh, sorry, I should introduce myself. Everett Downs, president of the Leftbridge Father Liberal Association. Our Canadian electorate has just given the Conservatives a majority vote, thereby giving the corporations the top hand on our well-being. Now, how can we, as general public, change this tidal wave that they will, that people will become important again as now the way I see it we have reduced everything to dollars and cents and people don't count anymore so how many people does it take to, to wake up the general public that we can stand up for our rights before the Harper government will invoke the non-standing clause and do away with the constitution and we have a republic or we have a, a dictatorship and then there's not enough people to stand up and fight it being short of a revolution like Egypt well, I thank you for your comment, and I share your concern that we have a majority government without a majority vote. And I think this is probably the least democratic or least representative government we've ever had in the country in terms of how many people voted and yet how much of a, a majority they got. I just saw some numbers today from Fair Vote Canada that um, if they, if the numbers, if the representatives in the House of Commons represented the percentage of votes uh, that each party got, um, the Conservatives would, yes, would have the most, but not, but they wouldn't have their majority. It would be down to uh, 122. The Liberals would have m more than they had. The NDP would have slightly less. I think it was 95. Um, the Greens would have 12, I think, and the Bloc would have some more. So you would have, you would have had probably the ability of the NDP to go to the other parties and form a government. Is, is probably what would have happened. The, the problem, however, of course, is that it looks like Mr. Harper is going to take this majority, which really isn't... I mean, if you think of the numbers of people who did not vote at all, which is about 39% of Canadians, and then the number of people who voted but didn't vote for them, it's probably three-quarters of the population did not vote for this government. And yet, um, they are going full steam ahead on a very, very clear agenda. And their agenda is to diminish the role of government, to change the role of government. So government is no longer representing the people um, and, and seeking to, um, you know, create the best uh, system for the people, but rather uh, and, um, uh, defending and promoting, um, and in some cases, you know, in law through these trade agreements, the rights of corporations. I mean, that's very clear to me what 
um, what the, this Prime Minister is about. Um, but he can only do it if the Canadian people let him. I mean, if he were to come and say, I'm going to dismantle the Canada Health Act, we would stand up as one person. Like, Canadians would not allow it. Even lots of Canadians who voted for him would say, no, this isn't acceptable. So we have to try to do our analysis a little deeper and say, well, that is, in effect, what you're doing with letting it in here and there. Um, you are, in fact... Um, fundamentally and profoundly changing the face of democracy in this country. Um, and I don't know an easy way to, to do this except hard work, which is why I'm here tonight and not home. You know, Not that I don't love being here, and I took a nice jog around your Lake Henderson today. It's very pretty. Uh, but it's hard work to get um, people to feel that there's something they can do. Often they feel... I voted, and I don't know what else to do, you know, and, and, and as you know, that's not, that's just simply not enough. Um, but I feel heartened. I work a lot with young people, and I, I spoke, I have um, four little grandkids, and I spoke for Earth Day, I gave up all sorts of requests to go because I got the most important request from one set of my grandkids are at a public school in Ottawa, so I went to speak in the gymnasium for these. They were grade fives and six. My little ones are only in grade three and four, but they were allowed to be in uh, come to the gym because their grandmother was speaking. And I was just knocked out by these kids. We're talking grade five and six, and they're asking these sophisticated questions. We talked about bottled water. These kids got it. Um, and I have a friend who, his, his uh, Alex Neve, with the uh, head of uh, Amnesty International, and he wrote his little boy goes to that school, and he said, thank you very much. Our son is now following us around. Turn the tap off. You can't drink bottled water. He said he's driving us crazy. Thank you for, for visiting the school, right? But it, I was, I'm just um, touched in, and in a really important way, I think we have to understand what these kids are learning and how they're hearing and how they're seeing themselves as stewards, uh, the way I don't think I ever learned as a kid. So I, I believe hope is a moral imperative. We will have a tough four years. It's going to be a tough four years. And it looks like a tough permanent time in Alberta in terms of forever and ever, this government, right? Uh, but nevertheless, they have not managed to totally dismantle uh, health care either, for instance. I mean, when we put a fight up and we fundamentally say, I don't care what you call your political party, these are our rights and you are not taking them away. Something important happens, and I, I, um, I, feel, I feel that people get the issue about water. They get it when you say that water is a human right and a public trust and a, a commons, and it belongs to the earth and all, all people, and it belongs to the future, and it does, nobody should be allowed to expropriate it for profit while others are dying. I mean, I think that's common sense that actually crosses political lines, and, and uh, we just need to keep... We just need to fight for it, and I, 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 um, I, I feel very hopeful. I really do. Yes. Uh, my name is Tom Keane, and I work with a small group of activists called Green Sense, and we're, we're forever thinking that we are banging our heads against some pretty brick, uh, tough brick walls. But I think you banged your head against the United Nations, and you won. Yes. Uh, who would have thought? Who would have thought? So now you have the nerve to suggest Alberta should become copying Vermont. So, thanks for the inspiration, and you have the hope, but I'm not sure how to do it in Alberta, to get Alberta to become Vermont, or learn from Vermont, yeah. and what timeline do we have? Like, we're about to have a provincial election in, in another year, yeah. so is that a time to really push the envelope and 
And if so, what should we do to try and get uh, Alberta or Albertans to learn? If Albertans learn from people in Vermont, we could likely explain it to the Alberta government. But we vote conservative all the time. Or enough, I don't, but an awful lot of people do. Well, thank you for a wonderful question and, and thought. And that's why I told you that the... Um, the legislation in Vermont was introduced by a Republican and a Democrat. I, I thought it, I just love that story. Both women, um, and it was adopted unanimously. Both parties unanimously voted for it. So it, 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 it this thing can uh, cross party lines when people start to understand what's at stake. Um, the timeline is that I don't think they're going to push. Um, um, uh, water trading before the election. I think they're going to get a mandate, whatever mandate they get, they're going to use that uh, as the next set of steps. So I think there's some time to make it an election issue. I, I would suggest working with the Council of Canadians um, here in Alberta and across the country and, and putting together, we, can, we need to put together what the alternative vision for Alberta would be. I think it's not enough to put the criticism out there. And we have the critique, and there's lots of great stuff on our website and others. But we need to actually put together what it would look like if Alberta actually brought in the kind of water law that would protect and conserve water in watersheds, would protect it as a, as a, as a well-managed commons for all, as a public trust and a human right. What would it look like? And we've got the, the, the bare bones of a lot of that, and we could probably draw it up for Alberta. We are, there is a report being done now. It should be done within a couple of months on water markets in Alberta. It's going to be very detailed from our perspective on why it's the wrong answer. And we can work with them to uh, be putting, helping with language to, to uh, articulate the alternative. If we don't find the vision that, that's the alternative, then we're always just being negative. And it's really important for us to say this is what we would this is this is the vision and this is why and and this is what it would look like if Alberta adopted this. I, I feel that it's I think the ideas would capture people's imagination. I really do. Not just some people who vote one way, but I think it could be something that captures the hearts and minds of many. So I'm just thinking about time, maybe just the two here. Um it's up you guys. Good. All right. Hi. Thanks for coming tonight. Um, I saw you. I saw you actually first on Blue Gold, and uh, was inspired at that time. And I uh, really enjoyed your speech tonight. So thank you for that. My name is Katrina Kellner, and um, I'm commenting um, on resource development in Alberta and the priority that it is made to be by the Alberta government. And um, truly how discouraging this is for people trying to protect certain lands. Um, there's a key example happening in our nearby Castle Wilderness where first, the most recent was Mount Bacchus, which has been now, this is the second go-around, um, and it's going to be oil and gas wells being drilled in there, and that's really quite a shame. And then there's also the, the um, clear-cut logging that's going to be starting within the next couple months. And... Uh, seemingly, you know, there hasn't been a lot of efforts in some ways put in by the general population. People are scared away by anything like that, anything controversial, and that's quite discouraging. And any of the uh, hard-earned efforts that have been put in, that I've, I've been very much witness to, uh, have been blindly ignored by our um, government. And uh, so the constituents are being ignored. We had a survey recently done 
75% of the population in Coaldale, Lethbridge, Crosnes Pass, Pinter Creek, um, all that area was ignored. They didn't really care. So, you know, with that kind of, those kind of staggering statistics, how are we as the general populace, in particular, you know, people in my age group, um, going to continue to attempt these types of fights and ba- battles against the government that doesn't give a yeah. care whatsoever, right? It's really discouraging. Um, I, I would love to... to find out a way, and I think one of the key um, key methods to this, and this is what I saw in this whole effort to protect the castle wilderness that I put my time into this past uh, winter, was a huge disconnect between um, all of the organizations that were working towards the same goal, and none of them communicating with each other, and, and I was just wondering if you can answer how we can all better communicate with each other to fight the powers that be to actually make what, hap- what needs to happen happen. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for your passionate um, and upsetting question, because you're right, we're up against very formidable forces when you take a look at the governments themselves and the deep relationship with these companies and the power they have and the growing power they have, and then you, on top of that, these trade agreements that are going to give them such um, permanent uh, rights. Uh, It is daunting. Um, but I think you answered your own question. Your an- the, que- the answer to your question is that there are a lot of people who care. We're not finding necessarily the way to work together. And it would be something that you might want to uh, talk about to the local council of Canadians folks here, um, Sheila, Knut, and others, um, about maybe hosting a roundtable. When we set out to make a national campaign on something, always, 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 we, we have the following steps. We learn as much as we can about it, and then we do some fundamental writing about it so we have the facts down, and then, and you know, get start getting research and legal opinions and so on, and then we think about who should be upset about this, which groups should be upset, and then we call them all together at a big round table and we say, this is coming down the pike. We did this with uh, with this CETA in 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 uh, from at a national level. We brought together labor, environment, um, cultural groups, uh, food sovereignty groups, farmers, um, all sorts of of, of, of groups, uh, healthcare workers, people who are concerned about um, you know uh, education. We put all the people together, all the major groups. These weren't just individuals; these are representatives of groups. And we came together and we formed a network to fight this CETA. And so you're depending on not only that co- that coalition, that networking, but then they've got newsletters, they've got their own social media, and they then get the information out to their members. And that's the most important thing, because the member of parliament or the MLA sitting in his or her office doesn't care what an organization says particularly, but they care of hundreds and maybe even thousands of their members, of their voters, I mean, um, are writing them letters. I remember getting this uh, MP saying, call them off, you know, one not on this issue, on another one, because we just got thousands of letters and emails into, into offices because we did it in a coordinated way with different groups. So I would, I would say to you that you answered your own question. It's a lot of work to do it, and you best do it with or, or an organization like the council. But in a community like Lethbridge, you start by saying, who should be concerned with this issue, and how can we sit down at one table? Very often you'll find it some of the same people that belong to different groups, but you will bring in new people, and they're representing different interests. And sometimes you have to stretch your mind. 
bring the nurses to the table. Why? Well, because in this case, water is all about health, you know. Um, you know, First Nations communities, uh, you know, have very deep roots uh, in terms of being able to get out um, to uh, vast areas and vast communities. We can work together and we can make a difference. I've, I've, listen, I've, I've fought a lot of battles in my time, and I'll tell you I've won more than I've lost. I know you can win. I know that if it hadn't been for our movement collectively, I don't mean us, I mean all of us together, we wouldn't have Medicare today. I mean, that there have been successive governments who, ha- who would not have... If they wouldn't have dismantled it, they wouldn't have protected it either. Um, you know, I can name a whole... I can remember we had, there was a huge pension grab that we fought and won. I laugh now that I hear Mr. Chrétien saying, well, we're in, uh, Canada re- got through that recession or that economic crisis, the financial crisis, because I kept the banks together. We didn't deregulate. Well, they came that close, and it was a bunch of our organizations who fought them when they thought in the 1990s they were going to deregulate. We had a huge fight. And I remember we had a big billboard we put outside of Paul Martin's office so that when he looked out the window, there was a huge billboard saying, Paul Martin, don't you know keep your hands off our banks. It's like, you know, it's like, you forget that we did that. You know, all right, take credit. That's fine. I'm happy. You know, credit wherever you want it. But... We can make a difference, and I've, I've I've been involved in a number of fights. We we fought and won the multilateral agreement on investment in the 90s, late 90s. Would have given corporations around the world this investor state right to sue all governments. It was an appalling agreement, um, and it was darn near completed when we got a hold of it in the brown paper bag and splashed it all over the media and and launched a fight, and we won. Uh, you know, so it's, I, I know I, I don't like losing. <laughs> I prefer to win. And I, I, I do think that when we articulate, I mean, here we're talking about public water, when we articulate the fact that there is a limited amount of water, I, I have a, a PowerPoint, not a PowerPoint, just because I don't use PowerPoint, except when I speak in French, and then I hope they're not listening to my French, and so I make them watch my PowerPoint. But I have a, 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 vid, a, a visual. And it shows the earth, so there's the earth, all stripped of its water. So it's just a big brown thing. And then, so to scale, beside it uh, is all the water in the world. And so there's the big earth, there's the water. It's that big, little blue thing. And then beside that is a pinprick of a little blue dot, and that's all the available fresh water on earth. It's the most powerful thing to see. You think, right, big earth, many people, many demands, uh, little water, little tiny, tiny available fresh water. So when you know that and when you understand that and people understand that and that it is diminishing, that we are destroying it really, really quickly, um, as the demand grows and the supply declines, that we are in a species in crisis around this issue. I consider it the greatest human and ecological crisis of our time. When you get it, then you are open to a more rational argument than just let it be a free-for-all. Because right now, it's just let it be a free-for-all. Not, I don't mean everywhere. I mean in places that are looking at water markets and so on. So I think we can articulate the, the you know, to go back to this notion about putting forward an alternative that resonates. I think we can do that. And I think when you have the argument, um, you can win the day. And I, I, I believe we can win this one. I really do. Yes. Oops. If my memory serves me right, Mr. Mulroney's premise was, give me 10 years and I'll, you won't recognize the country. Mm-hmm. Probably the only promise he kept. 
I, what concerns me is that in view of the path that the present leader of the government has been on since he first began his political career and the fact that he now has four years I am wondering whether in fact even if we were to persuade the country to change the government four years from now whether we wouldn't be too late well, you're right about Mulroney, although it was 20 years, he said. Give me 20 years. And the very first thing Brian Mulroney did when he was elected, by the way, was that he went down to New York City and he spoke to a blue-chip audience of 600 business leaders and the, the speech title was Open for Business. And he took out a nine-page color supplement in the New York Times. I still have it. It's a collector's item. And basically, the title of it was Open for Business. And the whole thing was, we're going to take away the Foreign Investment Review Agency. Our energy sector is totally open. Come on up for our mines and minerals and stuff. It was shocking, actually, if you think of it. I go back and I look at it now, and I think, yep, you knew what you were going to do, and you did it. So you're right. A lot of this has already happened, and it gets locked in through these trade agreements, which is why I still worry about them so much. But I don't think there's any such thing as too late. I just don't, it's just not in my DNA to think that way. What we create that's bad, we can, we can vote out of office. What we decide to um, change, we can change. We can, we're immensely resilient. I thought the young man who said, if we're smart enough to find all this, this natural gas through this fracking, can't we find a better way to do you know, for alternative energy. If we're that smart, then we're smart enough to find a, a better way to do it. We, I just will never buy that it's too late. I, I, will, I will know that, the, the, that it gets harder, um, but, the, the, you know, there are certain eternal values that I think uh, around democracy, around fundamental rights that I don't think people are going to give up. And I'm, I'm greatly hopeful with what's happening in Latin America. How can you not be hopeful, although terrifiedly so, with some of the Arab countries and the, you know, the Middle Eastern countries and the, the, the yoke of dictatorship that's being cast off? Um, I just I find that hope is a moral imperative, and, um, and it's, it's our job to stay hopeful and be hopeful for young people particularly. So we'll make this the last one. Yeah. My name is Klaus Jericho. Um, I have two questions, uh, Dr. Barlow. The first one is, do you ever get tired? <laughs> and the second? <laughs> <laughs> and the second question is, um, pertains to hope. You have expressed considerable hope, and uh, which unfortunately I cannot share with you. And you gave me lots of evidence this evening to be more depressed. Um, yeah, and I think most of we have created in the past um, huge numbers of problems. And um, this was all during the period of time where the male was dominant. And um, I, re I recognize that in modern society, uh, women become more assertive. And uh, I'm asking, and, and, and traditionally, women are associated with the word care. So uh, for me, that might be one 
sign of hope. Could you comment on that, please? Well, I'll try not to think about Ma- Margaret Thatcher as I, <laughs> as I comment, but yes, I agree with you that I, I, I think that the, the, the move to diversity is a healthy one, let me put it that way. And when that includes all people of different ethnic backgrounds, uh, different ages, uh, you know, genders, sexes, all, all of the, the ways in which we're diverse, I think is great. I am not of the school that thinks, oh, horror of horrors, all these young people that got just got elected from Quebec or wherever. I think there's a lot of young people in our country. Finally, they're, rec- they're represented in the House of Commons, you know, and they sure couldn't be any dumber than some of the people that... <laughs> You know, those who go and think that it's their privilege to have arrived and, you know, of course we voted for them because they were born to be voted for. I love the diversity that I, I see, uh, you know, in the House of Commons now in the opposition. So I, I find it hopeful. And that's the hope. And I, I hear you. It's, you know, you don't want to be cheaply. I don't mean to be Pollyanna, hopefully, Pollyanna-ish hopeful. I want to be... Um, uh, realistically hopeful in the sense that you take into account what we're up against, but you also take into account that we're privileged. We're all sitting here. We've probably all had food. We all are dressed nicely. We're, you know, we do, you know, compared to a lot, I, I see a lot of terrible stuff in my in my travels. And so I come back and I think it's a responsibility as tough as life is now. And I know I just read about the downturn in the economy in the U.S., and they said 20 million unemployed. I mean, it's just incredible when you think of the, you know, in this the, the richest country in the world that there could be that kind of stress. But nevertheless, there is still enough of that privilege here that I think it's our responsibility to fight for it. You asked me... Uh, you asked me if I ever get tired, and of course I do. But uh, people will say, well, how, you know, what do you do with your anger when you hear all this stuff? And I say, well, I come and I tell you, and, I, and you get upset, and I feel all better, which is actually perfectly true. I'm not, and I feel, like, energized now because you're upset, and I'm not upset anymore. Like, I, I gave it to you, and I'll sleep tonight. I will um, leave you with thanks and love and with the advice of a 95-year-old friend of mine. And she's been through everything. She fought for the vote for women. She's been every. She's fought for every good issue in her, in her almost hundred years. And she says, you you make a commitment to a life of, of justice. The social justice is a, a life of commitment, and it's not something like you put on like a fashion or take off. It's it's something you do all the time. And when she gets real mad, because some of us will feel sorry for ourselves, there's always another issue. Like I've just dumped a whole new trade issue on you, right? And she says, ooh, fighting for justice is like taking a bath. You do it every day or you're going to stink. So don't stink. Thank you. Thank you so much, Maude. I know how busy you are these days, and we really appreciate you taking the time to come and speak with us here in Lethbridge. Uh, I want to mention again that if you would like to hear this session or any of the other regular or special SACPA sessions, you can go to sacpa.ca and listen to them there. I want to um, 
thank Lois uh, Frank very much for telling us about the local issues here. I'd like to, again, thank Two-Spirit Sage Walker for the lovely flute music. And uh, I'd like to bring Mike Brewsthead back, who has a few closing comments to make on the subject of hope. Thank you, Sheila. Um, I guess I, I felt the same way uh, since, well, I guess last August, this thing of all by yourself thinking. But uh, as I uh, started this whole thing, uh, I found a lot of friends. And uh, I guess all of you, you must be here for a reason. And so I'll take you as my friends. Um, I've written uh, official objection letters to Energy Resources Conservation Board and uh, the uh, Indian Oil and Gas Canada. And they've yet to reply on a couple comments. And one is their fiduciary responsibility <laughs> to care for me. Um, I think they're having a hard time with that. And uh, maybe they don't really care for me, but I think uh, whatever letter they're going to write, I don't think is going to be adequate. And I think that's why they don't want to write a letter. So going back to this hope, uh, I've prayed lots. They in the morning and in the evening, you know, asking for strength. And, uh, you know, like right now, this is just uh, the fracking that happened was between 5 and 10 years ago. And if this happens, this next round of fracking, I don't know, whatever, I probably have 200 chemicals coming into my water. And uh, it, it kind of changes you. You know, when you're sitting in your uh, kitchen and you look at your, your water pouring, you know, and your dishwasher's on and you're wondering, geez, you know, are my dishes going to glow in the dark because of what's ever coming out, you know. But it, when, when it hits home, it really does, you know. And uh, so I've, I've, I guess, pulled through uh, inner strength. You know, it, this is... Uh, like somebody said, the uh, comment on fracking, you know, I've looked at it, and, and I think it has helped me absorb that those people that were uh, part of the documentary interviewed going through the same thing. Like right now, I, 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 I just dare anybody to uh, say, Mike, uh, your water's still good. This was done by professional labs, very scientific and I don't even have to look at fracking or gas line anymore because it's happening in my house, you know. I don't, I don't need to go elsewhere, you know, but I still do because I want to research and learn from, you know, their, uh, I guess, what they're going through. And it was, uh, I felt in tune with a cattle rancher from Wyoming him hauling water 60 miles or 40 miles every day, I hope I don't have to do that with my cattle operation. It's not a large one, but it's something there. And I, I like horses, you know, and I think everybody here in southern Alberta has some agricultural ranching uh, heritage. So with hope, I like to, I guess, to symbolize this sweet grass, I like to give it to you, Maud for your uh, travels around the world. And uh, it, it came from the blood reserve <laughs> before it got tam uh, contaminated. So this, 
This is what we used to pray. This is the beginning of a ceremony. This sweet grass was smudged. This is the very, I guess, uh, pinnacle point of our ceremonies. And hopefully the sweet grass will remain green on the blood reserve instead of some other weird color. And, and that it stays green and fresh for years to come. Because I would like to have, uh, uh, I still do sweat ceremonies. I sweat with my son and my grandson. And I like to see my grandson and his kids continue using sweetgrass for what it's for. And that it, the reserve doesn't never uh, turn into a desert. Thank you. I just have one last thing to say. If you are interested in the T-shirts, such as the one that uh, Lois gave to Maud and a few other people are wearing here, they'll be available in the lobby afterwards. As well, there are still some uh, Council of Canadians materials on CEDA and the water markets in Alberta. If you'd like to help yourself to those, please do. Thank you very much for coming. <laughs>